0: Hello, welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you with us again. I'm Dr. Leela Lewis, a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and also the medical director for Adventist World Radio. It is hard to believe it has been five weeks since we embarked on the mission of looking at the 1918 pandemic and comparing those novel lessons learned during that period of time to our current COVID-19 crisis. We've investigated these lessons and found that many of them that were employed at Seventh-day Adventist institutions at the time referred to as sanitariums have scientific applicability to our current COVID crisis. Well, tonight we'll be answering your questions, our medical experts are going to be looking at the questions that you've sent in and addressing them over the next hour and a half. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And again, as we have said over and over, over and over, it is a blessing to be with you. I am going to welcome my good friend, Dr. Dwayne McKee. He's the president of Adventist World Radio, and he's going to give us our welcome opening prayer.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lila. And happy Mother's Day to you.
0: Thank and you. Happy thank you so Day much. To
2: all,
1: all the mothers that
2: are listening. We just pray for each one of them. They'll be especially blessed. Let us thank pray. You. Father in heaven from Adventist World Radio, we're so grateful, Father, for all these wonderful people who listen, all of our physicians and our assistants here. And Dr. Leela, we just pray you'll bless each one. Mark Finley, each one is on the UKIN. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for all the mothers all the mothers on
3: the special day that we remember them. And we pray blessings on each one of them. All of us, Father, have had a mother. We pray a blessing on our mothers. Father, we thank you for your love. Bless us now as we continue to study and to learn together how we can take
2: better care of our health. In Jesus name, amen.
0: Amen, thank you so much, Dr. McKee. Like I said, it's been a pleasure to be with you over the last few weeks. Now, tonight, we want to investigate a little bit further by answering some of your questions. The first question has to do going back to the 1918 pandemic. And as we stated, this organization that's sponsoring this medical symposium is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And back at that time in the 1918 pandemic, these institutions or sanitariums run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church employed several principles we've been looking at, particularly hydrotherapy. We're gonna be talking to Dr. Roger Schwelt right now. Dr. Schwelt, Dr. Schwelt is a pulmonologist intensivist and he is an associate professor at Loma Linda University. Well, Dr. Schwelt, one of our first questions that came in besides hydrothermal therapy that were employed at these sanitariums that had really good results, what were some of the other modalities that were utilized in these institutions?
2: Well, they used what they had with them. And that was uh, sunlight. They took them outside. Uh, of course, naturally, they got fresh air. And we talked about that in, in one of our previous episodes. We talked about uh, bathing in the forest and the alpha uh, pinens and the beta the pinens. The These are substances that are aromatic and are given off by trees. Um. So all of these things were working together. Sunlight, as you know, of course, uh, allows you to make vitamin D. And so that is one of the, the things that's very, very important. In fact, there was a study that was done just recently on COVID-19 that showed that patients that presented to the hospital with low vitamin D levels had a worse outcome. Uh, recent data out of Ireland showing that Patients with vitamin D deficiencies and that were supplemented reduced their acute chest infection rate by 50%. So sunlight certainly was one of those things, obviously drinking lots of water. And if you look back to see what was written uh, about what they did, strict bed rest and sleep, these were all things that were employed in the sanitarium. It wasn't just a matter of of giving um, treatments. It was also a multifaceted approach.
0: Well, when they used this multifaceted approach, what was the overall success rate as compared to some of the other institutions that were nearby, such as the Army hospitals?
2: Yeah, let's take a look at um, at that very question. Um, what I have here up on the board is a, um, a shot that from our uh, update on MedCram, where we looked at this. And Dr. Rubel, who was the president uh, of the College of Medical Evangelists later to become Loma Linda University. Before that was the medical director of one of the sanitariums there in the Northeast, specifically the New England sanitarium. And uh, he wrote down what his findings were. We can see here in the army camps, which were full of a lot of recruits coming back from World War I, some of them coming back with the the flu, some of them uh, bringing it with them, some of them becoming infected. Uh, About 20% um, of these cases, had uh, the the influenza and about 16% of them came down with pneumonia. Remember, this was before penicillin. There was about a 40% death rate once they got pneumonia. So the the mortality rate in the death in in the camps was about 6.4%. Now let's look at the sanitariums. The sanitariums, of course, were doing things in there that you didn't have to be in the sanitarium to do. So they would send people out into the outpatient world and they would uh, work there, of course, a little bit less control. So let's look at actually what happened in the inpatient setting. About 446 patients, only two percent of those got pneumonia, wow. as opposed to 16 percent. And um, that then, because of pneumonia, was sort of a almost like a death sentence. Not not quite, but almost. No antibiotics, nothing. Uh, six of those died that got um, pneumonia. Six out of eleven, which of course is uh, greater than 50 percent. So in terms of the mortality rate from pneumonia, very comparable, but the key here that you can see, they ended up with a 1.3% mortality as opposed to 6.4% in the army camps. But the key there was not that they could manage pneumonia better than the army camps. Uh, It's that they could prevent the progression of this disease to pneumonia in the first place.
0: That's phenomenal. And that, those modalities are what we will be answering again tonight. And if you haven't had the chance to go back and watch all of the presentations previously, you can still do that at awr.org forward slash health, and you can watch those archived videos. Dr. Schwelt did a wonderful job presenting earlier on a full presentation. Well, Dr. Schwelt, we wanna talk a little bit more about the pathology of COVID-19. Several people have asked, what are the stages again? Can you repeat those stages for us for COVID-19?
2: Yeah, and these are just phases that we've come up with, that I've come up with. They're not official in any way, but it kind of makes us think about areas that we can intervene. Phase one being before you get the infection, and this is where a lot of people are putting in a lot of effort in prevention, so masks, mm-hmm. distancing, closing down places where uh, this sort of thing could spread. Phase two would be after you pick up the infection, whether it's in the incubation period, which is on median about five days or whether or not you have symptoms, but have not needed to go to the hospital. And for those that do need to go to the hospital, that period could last up to seven days on average, uh, based on the Lancet article out of the early Wuhan data. Finally, phase three of those patients that need to go to the hospital because they need oxygen, their saturations are low, they have shortness of breath. Um, And unfortunately the data that we are seeing in the Lancet article and also here in the United States is that that can be a rapid uh,
0: progression. Hmm. Well, the question is also subsequent to that. Why are we waiting until stage one, two, or three to talk about interventions? Why are we not talking in the preventative site? And I know your answer is going to be, you've sort of already alluded to it by talking to us about the 1918 pandemic and what they were doing as far as preventing going to pneumonia.
2: So it's a complicated question. And this is this is the bottom line is, it's imagine a, it's a big funnel. And the further back you go, the much, much more people you're going to have to treat. So if we're looking at treating people in phase two who have infection, you're talking about treating millions and millions of people, uh, as opposed to meeting them when they get to the hospital, you have a much smaller amount of people and you have the means to treat those people. That is if you're talking about a FDA approved medication, like remdesivir, for instance, like we've got a million and a half um, vials of medication, apparently that's been donated by Gilead. Um, and of course, they're going to be ramping up production. But what, what's going on right now, and I can tell you this personally, I have a patient in the hospital, I have patients that I'm treating COVID. And we don't have that medication as we speak right now in the hospital, only very few, few centers have it. And I've called them up. And when you ask them about transferring your patient there, they, they say that the only people that they're giving this medication to are the people that are the sickest, and the, the ones on the ventilator. Okay, so these, this is what happens when you have a very good medication, but not enough of it. So that's one extreme. You were talking about very sick people and a very low number of those people. And it may be that by that point, the medication is not very useful. Let's go to the other extreme. Let's talk about when people are not so sick, they have mild symptoms at the beginning, but there's millions of these people. So what are you gonna do? You, you don't have the capacity to meet that need. And so that that is the question, Layla, that is the question at hand is, is there something that's easily available to everybody in their own homes that they can get a head start on instead of just sitting there and waiting? So what I'm saying is, uh, since we can't get randomized placebo-controlled trial data medications to them right away, instead of going back thousands of years and lighting a candle and, and saying a chant, why don't we just go back 100 years when we've got hydrotherapy, that's something that's actually worked?
0: Very, very good point. And and many of the other modalities that we've talked about as well. So another question came in as far as the immunology is concerned. Is it advantageous to inhibit tumor necrosis factor 1, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, and increase IL-10 in order to decrease cytokine storm, or is this more dangerous?
2: Excellent question. So the bottom line is, is that at the beginning of this infection, you want your immune system to kick out this virus and hit it hard. We know that the virus has proteins that suppress your immune system and allows it to to go on and on and on for seven days until finally the immune system has woken up and then it hits it with such an immune uh, hit that you go into pneumonia. So there's some at the beginning of this, you want a strong immune system. At the end, you want to kind of suppress some of these cytokines that are causing a lot of problems. I was impressed to find an article that really went into this topic because I was concerned about giving hydrotherapy to patients in the right. hospital because maybe that might make it worse. Right. That showed that giving uh, people raising their temperatures could actually reduce, actually reduce, reduce
0: cytokine storms. Wow. Cytokine
2: by, by, um, The messenger RNA that is needed for the translation of the RNA into the protein that makes the cytokine can actually be degraded by increasing the temperature uh, in those patients. And so that was uh, fascinating. In fact, they had a mouse model that showed that when they um, had collagen-induced arthritis, that increasing the temperature of the mice actually reduced the inflammation in those joints.
0: And I know we have another question coming up in just a little bit about that, but that is absolutely profound. It it should give us some encouragement as far as the cytokine storm is concerned. Another question has come in, and I think it's actually a very good question. You know, we're trying to optimize our immunity. Should we be, and and we're trying to find therapies that actually meet the specific person's need. And we're talking more along the lines of these simple methods that we've been discussing. Should we be measuring specific lab tests, for example, white blood cell count, those kinds of things, and then apply therapies accordingly? Would that help us to be able to delineate the appropriate treatment to patients a little better?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, some of these lab tests are very, very specific. So if you're a community hospital, you're not going to get an IL-6 back or an antithrombin-3 level back in any useful time. If you're at a big center, that might be useful. Um, but if you're not, you might have to just kind of look and see how the patient's doing. So like uh is a uh, antibody against IL-6, might be helpful to measure IL-6 if you can do so. If you can't, if the patient looks like they're in, in a very bad pneumonia. We've been giving that medication for patients. It's a one-time dose. If somebody has an elevated D-dimer, you usually can get that back pretty fast. There's some data that shows that very elevated D-dimer levels correlate with microthrombi, and it may be beneficial, though we don't have randomized controlled trial, may be beneficial to start those on, not prophylactic doses of anticoagulation, but full doses of anticoagulation.
0: Fascinating. Okay, well, we're going to go into hydrotherapy, thermal hydrothermal therapy right now. So we talked about the three phases of COVID-19, And the question is, is there a specific form of hydrothermal therapy that would apply to each one of the three different phases, or is it better just to utilize whatever you have in front of you?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, The most aggressive form of hydrothermal therapy, in my thinking, would be, you know, heating up the body with very hot, warm compresses, both front and back. And then for about 30 minutes, um, 25, 30 minutes, and then ending with cold, and then doing that about two to three, uh, three to four times daily. Uh, we've done that with patients. I can tell you that in, in my intensive care. And um, after they got their first dose, they ask for it. They say, I'm ready for my hydrotherapy. They're ready. They, they don't quite like the cold rag at the end, um, but they, it makes them feel better. It, 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 they feel as though they can cough up the, sp- the sputum better. And so we're happy to do it. And we're using particularly a hydroculator, which is a, um, a machine that heats up gel. So it's very easily sterilizable. Uh, we're not doing this as part of a study. We're doing it for patient comfort. Um, we're hoping that it helps. I know that uh, my colleague, that'll be her on here later, um, Eric, is, is actually doing a study. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Um, whereas people who are more mild, I have a, a colleague who is currently tested positive. He's not working. He's at home. He's sick. And I've I've told him to uh, start in with similar things at home. If you're not sick and you're uh, you're doing fine, and you want to do it as a prophylactic. I think the contrast showers is a perfect thing to do. It's easy. It's convenient. It's literally you just turn the knob on the shower and you do that. And I think someone else is going to get into the practicalities of that as well.
0: Perfect. Here's another question. And it's along the same lines. Is it safe to do hydrothermal therapy if you've already gone out about 10 days into the progress of this disease? For example, you have a high fever, or is it too late? And you've kind of already almost addressed that with some of the questions as far as the cytokine storm is concerned.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think that the the concern about fever revving up the immune system and making the pneumonia worse is a theoretical concern. I've seen practical experiments and at least expert opinion that fever may not actually rev up the immune system in a bad way. Uh, we don't have data, uh, we don't know that for, for sure. So it's uh, it's always an, an interesting thing. Uh, it, it's true in the data that I just showed you at the beginning regarding the sanitariums, they really did know better with hydrotherapy and fresh air than, than the army hospitals in terms of when patients developed pneumonia. Again, I'm not sure they were getting all chest X-rays. Uh, they certainly didn't have pulse oximeters at that time. So how they were making the clinical diagnosis was probably with the stethoscope, listening for rails and seeing if the patients were cyanotic. Those are pretty late stages of pneumonia.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Well, how uh, speaking of fever, how permissive with fever should we be? Should you know what is your cutoff as far as antipyretics, is, particularly for you in the ICU?
2: You know, so so long as there's no comorbidities, and we'll talk about that in a second. I have never seen an adverse effect from a temperature of 103, even up to 104. Now, that being said, if somebody has a low seizure threshold, has a history of seizures, if somebody goes into atrial fibrillation, that's where the heart goes into irregular rhythm, and they go very fast, fever is going to exacerbate that. And so it really has to be on a case-by-case basis about which patients you're going to treat and which ones you're going to allow. Um, But certainly, I wouldn't advocate for simply treating a number, all things being equal.
0: Okay, very good. And that's actually a the application of our next question. Do you have a target core body temperature for your patients, particularly when you switch between the hot and cold? Are you doing that in the ICU at all?
2: You know, that's a good question. I don't think there's a specific core body temperature target. First of all, patients come in with all sorts of core body temperature. I Every single time I go into my clinic for the last week, they have to record my temperature and write it down to make sure they're doing their due diligence. And literally, just walking in one day versus another, I've just got an experiment here in the last week knowing that my body temperature can be anywhere from 98 to 99.5. And so, you know, what's my target? I have no idea. Um, I think that hydrothermal therapy is doing more than just elevating the core body temperature. There's a lot to be said for the vasculature that's occurring when you do hydrothermal therapy. There's vasodilation, vasoconstriction. The endothelium is a very important organ when it comes to COVID-19. So I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what the mechanism is, and I don't know if core body temperature is the, the be-all uh, for hydrothermal therapy.
0: So you're not currently testing on a regular basis the fluctuation between uh, core body temperature when you make your transitions between hot and cold?
2: No, not, not my patients, but then again, I'm, I'm not doing a study. I could see why somebody would wanna check that. That would be important, especially if you're doing a study.
0: Perfect. Another question as far as the heat is concerned. Is moist heat preferable to dry heat? And if so, why?
2: You know, I, I don't know the end all on that answer. I have heard people say, yes, it should be moist heat. I could see why that might be. Here's the reason. We all learned back in chemistry in high school, that water has a very high enthalpy of heat. What does that mean? It means it takes a lot of energy to increase the temperature of water as opposed to air. And that might be something that allows it to deliver more energy. Think of water as being a big battery, uh, a very powerful battery, whereas air is very s- small capacitance. And so when you, when you heat up water it, and it gets transferred and delivered to somebody, it's able to give off more energy. And that might be the reason why moist heat is, um, is better. It's also the reason why, Layla, when you go to Florida at night, it's nice and toasty in the evening, whereas in California, where there is no water in the atmosphere, it cools off very rapidly.
0: <laughs> Good point. Well, question for you as far as different populations. Several questions came in actually about this. How would you change the hydrothermal process for pregnancy, infants, children, and have you uh, begun to discuss that amongst your colleagues?
2: Yeah, I haven't really because uh, I don't treat pregnant women or children. Um, I, do. <laughs> I made that decision a long time ago that that was something for other people to do because um, you can only know so much about one thing. That being said, I you know we do hydrothermal therapy at home. And I'll tell you what, my kids are the most excited and first in line to do those things. I would say that you want to make it a positive experience for them. And so for kids, particularly, if they don't like the, the cooling off at the end, that may be something I, I wouldn't do. Although I've never had to do it for a child that I was really concerned that their life was in danger. It was more of a preventative. Uh, when it comes to pregnant women, I know there are some issues there. And Layla, you probably be more of an expert to answer that question. Uh, and yeah. so I will leave that to you.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, what I recommend to my patients is don't don't do the saunas. Um, the the A ABOG, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, is very clear about that. Don't do the saunas. Don't do the jacuzzis, etc. But hot and cold showers are very reasonable. You can use even on the chest. Um hydrothermal therapy to the chest area, just avoid the uterus. You you really want to decrease the direct heat to the baby. Um, But yes, I've noticed the same thing with my children. We've done preventative measures and I've cut the time in half. When we come back in just a little bit, practically speaking, we'll talk uh, decreasing the time for the children, I think is very beneficial. So will the use of hydrothermal therapy be problematic in the hypertensive COVID patient. Have you noticed that in the ICU, or are you concerned about that at all?
2: No, I would love to have hypertensive COVID patients, um, Layla. Um, if that's the case, that's a, a reason for me to add L- <laughs> L- Losartan, actually, um, because that's my favorite antihypertensive medication to go to. Not that I have evidence for this, but theoretically it should help because it's going to block angiotensin too which I believe in a lot of studies have shown that a lot of what we're seeing may be mediated through an elevated uh, angiotensin II level. Um, But I do not believe, and I've not seen any, both practically, theoretically, or in my own experience, of a hypertensive patient having an ill effect from hydrothermal therapy.
0: Okay. Now, we do have another question, and I think it's also a valid question. What about hydrothermal therapy in uh, hemodialysis or renal in-stage renal patients?
2: Yeah. So that's because end-stage renal patients typically have a lower uh, set temperature because of their kidney issues. Um, again, it shouldn't really matter if we are raising the temperature. We're still raising the temperature. Again, I believe that there's more to hydrothermal therapy than just a set core body temperature, although that may have uh, a lot to do with it. Uh, as we saw with uh, Dr. Joreg, the psychiatrist in Austria at the turn of the last century with his treating Um, uh, neurosyphilis patients with malaria and getting good results. Um, there, There may be more to it than just that.
0: Great. Well, one last question on our hydrothermal therapy section, specifically for subpopulations, and that's the geriatric population that tend to have a little bit of a relative hypothermia. Would you consider adjusting protocols? Have you done such things for elderly patients within the ICU?
2: No, I haven't. I don't think it needs to be adjusted, but I would say one thing, particularly in the ICU and only because elderly patients are more at risk for what I'm about to say, and that is being unconscious, being unable to tell uh, the person giving the hydrothermal therapy that it's too hot. And -hmm. also their skin being more apt to burn. In these Mm -hmm. cases, they're more fragile. So uh, we made kind of a, a rule at the beginning of this that we would probably refrain from doing hydrothermal therapy until we felt more comfortable with it Mm -hmm. Um, on patients who are unconscious and unable to tell us that it was too hot
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well thank you so very much dr schwelt as always your information has been quite enlightening and we really appreciate it and experience and we'll be hearing from you in just a few more minutes as well but thank you again up next we have dr john kelly dr kelly is the founding president of the american academy of lifestyle medicine he currently teaches lifestyle medicine to medical professionals. Dr. Kelly, you have taught hydrothermal therapy for many years. You've been practicing it for many, many years. And we have some practical application questions that have come in. Is it health, is it applicable to use hydrothermal therapy for healthy people?
1: Thank you, Leela. First, I just wanna say thank you. It's good to be with you tonight. And I appreciate all these great questions. Well, the short answer is yes, Uh, done properly. Uh, hydrothermal therapy poses no danger, and it can actually perhaps help uh, stimulate or activate the uh, immune system, as we've been hearing from Dr. Swelt and others. The contrast shower is probably the hydrothermal therapy the most commonly used for healthy people, but also uh, a hot foot bath. I see you've got a slide there uh, for those, and those are the two most uh, commonly used. Um, In fact, uh, we use a hot foot bath often to relieve headache with a cold cloth to the forehead and a hot foot bath for 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes and its uh, can be very, really, very effective.
0: Excellent. Now how we, we have it on the screen, but can you describe to us the the process that has come in um, several times over. Can you tell us how long for hot versus cold treatments for both the contrast showers and the foot bath specifically?
1: Sure. So typically, let's do the contrast shower, the alternating hot and cold first. So typically what we do here is uh, we we say it's a 5-1-3-1-3-1, but basically you can, oftentimes we do this after taking a shower. So let's say you take your morning shower, uh, that's in our home, that's how it's often done. So we might shower for 10 or 15 minutes um, and then Uh, increase the water temperature and begin the treatment. So at that time, it would be say three minutes, uh, one minute cold, uh, uh, three minutes hot, and another minute cold. Um, And the key thing here is that we're looking for, um, I I learned this fairly recently, that the uh, way the original hydrothermal therapy was done by a century ago was the cold was always actually applied starting with the nape of the neck uh, sh- uh the water coming down on the your neck and your back and they and the the point was it was felt that you needed to have that uh spontaneous uh you know breathing in like oh that's cold so um and the and they the indication was that it's, as roger was just saying dr schwelt was just saying is it's not a specific uh uh Temperature or body core temperature—it's the effect that you're looking for for the contrast. So anyway, the typical, uh, as it says right there, five. Uh, if you if you do this, just starting off with this shower, and there's, you're not doing your normal shower, be five minutes hot, a minute cold, three minutes more hot, and a minute cold, and three minutes hot again, and then a minute cold. People say how hot? Well, to a hot that you, that is um, that is you take you understand to be hot. It doesn't matter exactly the temperature, but we say somewhere between 104 and 106 degrees if you're measuring the water temperature. And the cold, now, as cold as you can handle.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> a good point. And how do you make it cold practically speaking? How would how would you do that besides just uh, turning it as cold as you can on the faucet as far as your foot baths are concerned?
1: Well, on the foot baths, I don't actually use cold until the end. So on a hot foot bath, we would usually use a hot, say 104 to 106 degrees. Uh, and if there's a decreased sensation, say with a diabetic foot or something, then we would not go above 104 degrees. Um, but so if, say 15 minutes of, of hot, and then uh, at the end, just pour cold water across the, the feet and dry them. Is the That's the experience that I've had with it.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about um, patients with and without symptoms? Hydrothermal therapy with and without symptoms, is the treatment the same that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. The only, really the only difference in applying hydrothermal therapy is that when symptoms are present, we may need to adjust the intensity of the treatment. So we may need to reduce the level, for example, to, to that we elevate the body temperature for a patient, let's say that's weak or infirm. Um, as we've already emphasized in multiple times in this uh, course, uh, symposiums, we don't want to overtax the patient. Um, and in fact, if I'm, I err on this, I would say err on the side of, of a more gentle treatment, and then you can repeat the treatment if you wanna have increased effect. Um, and then um, we might reduce the water temperature when decreased sensation is present, like we've already mentioned with a hot foot bath. And like I said, again, you can repeat the treatment and a mild, uh, use a mild form and repeat it a little more often and you can get uh, increased effect that way.
0: Great, now another question is specifically regarding the types of heating. Can a heating blanket be just as beneficial as moist heat and ice pack?
3: You know,
1: That's a good question too. I would say probably yes, at least in some applications, but I would point out one important point and that is the beneficial effects of the alternating hot and cold would not be present with a heating blanket okay. because that's that's going to start off. Uh, typically, you start off uh, cool and then it heats up, and there's no there's no contrast going on there.
0: Okay, great. Another question is specifically regarding saunas. Is there an inexpensive way to do hydrothermal therapy at home? If you don't have a sauna, I mean, we should all have showers, but let's just pretend we didn't sure. want to take a shower. We want to do another way. What, what yeah, would well, be the way that you would do well,
1: it? And I, and I have been in places where I did not have a shower, um, believe it or That's not. True. So, uh, But anyway, the answer is absolutely. Abs- absolutely. A hot tub bath, for example, is one. Uh, I remember I've I've done hot tub baths when I was not feeling well and I was out of town on a business trip uh, and with great effect. Fomentations, moist heat packs. This is another uh, thing that that can be done relatively simply with just a, a, a nice thick terry cloth towel. I uh, uh, moist, put it in a plastic bag and in the microwave. I mean, so there's many different ways of doing these kind of treatments uh, when you don't have a shower or sauna. Uh, another one is electric heating packs like the thermophore or some of the other brands. Those, uh, those can work very well. And we already mentioned the hot foot bath, you know, all you have to have for a hot foot bath is a, a uh, like a dish pan or a, some kind of a, I've even done it in a trash can. uh, uh <laughs> and, uh, heating compress for the neck. This is another one we haven't heard much about but that's a very simple treatment where you put uh, a wet uh, cloth around the neck and then put um, say a wool um, around that and this starts it's called a heating compress and it actually increases the blood flow and circulation to the uh, pharynx and to the throat area that's often very helpful for, for sore throat. So these can all be used with excellent effects and certainly don't need a sauna or a shower.
0: Excellent, what's the best time for hydrothermal therapy or is there a best time for things such as sauna baths or any, any form of hydrothermal therapy for that matter?
1: Yes, that's another really, really good question and I get that a lot. I would say this, in general, saunas and other whole body hydrothermal therapy is tiring. We must re- realize that if you do this uh, treatment, uh, a treatment like this, a whole body treatment for 20 minutes you, the person is gonna be tired. And by the way, before you ever do one of these, you should do it yourself. Don't don't give a treatment you've never, to someone or, or even a family member until you've done it to yourself. But anyway, so they are tiring. And so it's, it's best to do them when the subject can sleep an hour or more after the treatment. Um, and also, I think it's best to have eaten uh, two or three hours before the treatment if, if, if the person is eating because you don't wanna do it right after eating. Uh, And at the same time, you don't want to do it when the person is going to be faint and maybe have low blood sugar or whatever. So I recommend somewhere around two to three hours after uh, eating. Um, I like to do them actually um, in mid-morning and then another one in the mid-afternoon. And then if it's really, if I'm really, I've had cases where I'm treating someone that's quite sick and I'm very serious about doing these, I'll do one more an hour or so before bed. So. but that's Excellent. that's my general yeah my general approach is, is to watch watch the meal time and uh, and be sure that they can rest afterwards.
0: Excellent. And the last question we've already addressed the time limits for foot baths and contrast showers, but specifically for chest hydrothermal therapy and also saunas. And I think you've kind of mentioned it about twenty minutes. But if you could just tell us sure. the formulation for that.
1: Yes. Well, the, the one thing I want to say is um, that the hot should be long enough uh, to fully heat the target anatomy. So if you're doing like a chest fomentation, you want to put a a hydrothermal pack on and have it on long enough to impart the heat that Dr. Swelt was talking about. The water is a wonderful reservoir for for BTUs. And so typically that would be four, four minutes, five minutes. I've heard of people doing it three minutes, but somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five minutes. And then um, you have a cold mitten friction with a cold cloth. It feels number one that feels good, but it also actually makes the heat uh, more tolerable uh, to have that that intermittent cold. And then you would put another pack on for uh, another four minutes or so. Uh, the total time is somewhere around fifteen to twenty minutes would be the total amount of time, and and maybe it takes thirty seconds to do this uh, uh, cold. Uh, rub, rub, we call it cold mitten friction. Uh, with sun, again the same. Uh, our typical approach is 15 to 20 minutes with a one minute uh, cool down. And um, again, there is good indication that if you make that cool down uh, have a contrast so that it's it's not just cool, but a little start, be anyway cold. A contrast is good. And then um, I've actually, uh, you know, we've all heard of the uh, Norwegians and they, uh, in the, uh, that area, they they go take a hot sauna and then go out into the snow. So anyway. Great. But well, anyway, thank you for the opportunity. No, to, thank to, you, Dr.
0: Kelly. Thank you so much for your experience. And we really appreciate your information and making it practical to us. So thank you so much. And we'll look forward to more presentations from you in the future. Again, thank you, Dr. Kelly. Up next, we have an amazing physician, uh, Dr. Eric Nelson. He's an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Dr. Nelson is one of the chief investigators of an amazing study that's taking place there on hydrothermal therapy. Several people have asked us, first of all, welcome Dr. Nelson. Thank you. Glad to have you back with us. several have asked, how do we access the IRB proposal? We are looking to find out more information about potentially doing that at our facility. How would you propose that we access that information?
4: Yeah, well, thank you for having me on again. And um, I just want to give a quick shout out to the 31 individuals and hopefully centers who are already trying to implement something along these lines. I'm very excited to see the uh, worldwide response, actually. I've had people from all around the world, Guam, Russia, several countries in South America, and of course a lot here in the United States that are looking to implement this. The best way is to email me, uh, enelson06m at yahoo.com. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm happy to send you our IRB proposal. Uh, It's not the kind of thing that I can post publicly on the internet, but I'm happy to uh, interact with folks individually. And the reason I'd like to do that is again, so that we can hopefully collaborate in the future. If many different centers are using a somewhat similar protocol, we can then combine data in the future. Again, enelson06m at yahoo.com.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Nelson. So another question specifically regarding your study, what did you use as exclusion criteria?
4: Sure, so I heard you and Roger already talking about pregnant patients. Uh, We're simply excluding all pregnant patients. Again, this is a very preliminary uh, feasibility study, and we're being very cautious. So we're excluding pregnant patients, patients with any history of symptomatic bradycardias, uncontrolled atrial arrhythmias, or ventricular arrhythmias. Uh, Certainly any hypotensive patients, anyone who's unable or unwilling to participate in the treatment, again, we're not set up such that... um, we wouldn't feel comfortable if someone was not able to verbalize back to us how hot they were experiencing the treatment. Uh, Any patient that has a thoracic wound or a dermatologic condition over or under the area that we would be treating on their thorax, uh, any neuropathic or other pain syndromes that would uh, preclude hydrotherapy to that area. Um, We do have one patient that um, we had to talk with neurology and we are treating them, but we waited for 72 hours after they'd had an acute stroke, likely due Mm. to COVID, Mm -hmm. Um, and they didn't have a problem with that, but we did want to wait 72 hours after their stroke. And then, uh, something called the H score greater than 169. I know Rogers shared information about how it's possible that hydrothermal therapy actually modulates the immune response. So it ramps up the initial innate immune response and then modulates it such that you would not proceed to a cytokine storm. But if patients seem to be very close to a cytokine storm based on the H score, we're not including them in our study.
0: Okay. All right. What about climate considerations? There's some questions as far as community-based models. Have you guys considered or any other of your colleagues considered doing community-based models specifically at different places in the country that have humidity, higher humidity, or more dry climates?
4: Yeah, I don't know that we've made any particular changes based on the local climate. One mm-hmm. thing that did come up, I corresponded with someone who had a lot of experience in Africa doing hydrothermal therapy, and they didn't have enough water to do the hydro in hydrothermal therapy. Oh. And so what they did do is literally got some ponchos or some, um, uh, some plastic wraps, uh, many of them dark colored or black, wrapped the patient up in these and set them out in the sun. They made wow. sure that they were hydrated. And of course, they started sweating very quickly and profusely. And they measured their temperature. They heated them up that way. And then um, they did their best to cool them down to provide that contrast. But they didn't have the ability to put them in a shower or a hot tub bath or anything because they had limited resources the on the waterfront. Um, wow. So that was one way that uh, in a resource austere environment, uh, you can still do hydrothermal therapy.
0: That's amazing. Speaking of cooling down, what ways did you utilize at your facility for cooling down measures or did you use them specifically to the head?
4: So I do see the question I think is a lot of, uh, for example, the foot bath there was application of a cool washcloth to the forehead for, for headache. That is written into our study that if patients wish it, we're happy to give them a cool washcloth to the forehead. Um, It's not part of our protocol, As far as your question on how are we cooling the patients, we're using a cold towel um, dipped in cold water. And as soon as the 20 minutes are up and we're taking off the thermophore, we're applying that towel to their chest for approximately one minute.
0: Very good. Last question. Many have asked this. How can we keep abreast of the outcomes and the progress of the hydrothermal therapy study, particularly what you're doing, but also as you look at these multi-center Uh, kind of analysis. We'd like to know how we can keep up to date on that.
4: Sure. Follow the medical literature. Hopefully within a year or two, we'll be able to publish something. But uh, I understand there's some further presentations planned here that you can probably tell us a little bit about, Leela, that undoubtedly I'm happy to share as the study progresses. Fortunately, again, we flattened the curve here in Chattanooga, it seems fairly effectively. And um, we probably only have uh, about four or five patients on the study currently compared to approximately 20 to 25 controls that, um, that were also treated for COVID in the hospital where we're performing the study. So it'll be a while before we uh, are able to uh, provide any actual results. And again, this is a feasibility study. We believe it works based on the historical data that you and Roger have already discussed this evening and we've discussed in the past but we'd like to see how we can apply this in a hospital setting in patients that are kind of in that uh, phase two or phase three of uh, treatment for their COVID.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nelson. And yes, you are correct. We will be inviting you back again. We have another upcoming program called Level Up, And you're going to want to stay tuned for that, but we will be following your research very closely. So thank you again, Dr. Nelson, and thank you for your inspiration to many physicians around the world. Up next, we have Dr. Neil Nedley. You know, many of the modalities that we've been discussing, it wasn't just hydrothermal therapy that was utilized in 1918. As we've noted, they had a very special diet that they used. They had um other aspects of health exercise sleep and many different things that were again utilized as a holistic approach to health well one of those things that was used was nutrition and we've seen in Dr. Nedley's presentation a couple weeks ago the effect that nutrition does play as far as the immune system for covid-19 so we have some questions about nutrition. I'm going to want to welcome Dr. Neil Nedley. He is an internal medicine specialist, a hospitalist, and also the president of Weimar Institute, which really specializes in lifestyle medicine. Thank you, Dr. Nedley, for joining us.
5: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So our first question is, why are we not intervening? We've talked about the phases of COVID-19. Why are we not intervening before phase one with things that we know are top antioxidants such as vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, et cetera?
5: Well, I think it actually is a good idea to uh, do that. I'm not uh, advocating we wait necessarily, uh, particularly if you have some health concerns or some flaws in a new start lifestyle. I think uh, getting extra vitamin C, like a thousand milligrams twice a day, getting extra zinc. uh, We mentioned even quercetin before, and acetylcysteine. These things, uh, theoretically, uh, can give us a, a potential significant advantage, can reduce oxidative stress, and help our immune response be optimized. And so uh, why not? And a lot of individuals are. It's hard to find zinc in the stores these days because That's the, uh, many people are taking that as they go about uh, their daily activities. And particularly if they are uh, what we call um, the, the workers that are necessary uh, workers that are going to be exposed to this every day. Uh, and um, and so there's no problem taking this pre phase one.
0: Excellent. Well, speaking of zinc and acetylcholine, exercise and a healthy diet, all the things that we've been talking about, this question comes to us, are these enough to fight off COVID-19? In the case that a vaccine comes available in the near future or at some point in the future, are, are these things sufficient for us to avoid the necessity of taking the vaccine?
5: course, we don't have any comparison uh, trials. And the vaccine, I, I wouldn't necessarily look for this to be a great vaccine. Uh, you know, RNA vaccines are actually tough. Um, you know, they tried for years on the HIV RNA vaccine, and we know how terrible that vaccine was. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the influenza vaccine has actually not been that great. Uh, particularly the last few years. Some years they've hit it better than others. Uh, And of course, this is going to be another RNA vaccine. And of course, there can be conflict of interest, even in regards to government uh, officials, uh, even at the NIH that are vested in this vaccine and are are going to try to mandate everybody to take it, despite the fact that we're really not going to know how well it works or, or what the complication rate is going to be. Having um, said that, uh, we really don't know uh, for sure how effective these other modalities are like N-acetylcysteine. We do know how effective it is against influenza. And if we were to compare, although there's not been a head-to-head comparison trial, if we were to compare the statistics of the influenza vaccine versus just taking N-acetylcysteine, N-acetylcysteine does far better as far as you not getting symptoms of the flu than actually taking the vaccine. And of course, there's lower risk as well with the NAC versus the vaccine. And so um, uh, we anticipate maybe that's going to be the case as well. And of course, these other modalities are already available, um, they are potentially effective. Uh, side effect profile is virtually nil. And so, uh, will that be better than the vaccine? Maybe.
0: Do you, have you noticed any contraindications for N-acetylcholine? I've heard a few myself, but have you um, noted any yourself?
5: Yeah, as far as N-acetylcysteine, one of the concerns was, was pregnancy. Actually, there's been some large studies done on pregnancy and N-acetylcysteine. One of them was a randomized controlled trial looking at NAC in women who had had spontaneous abortions. And the NAC actually protected them. Uh, from having a recurrent spontaneous abortion with no effects at all on the fetus or the pregnant individual. And so although some are saying that we don't know for sure, there's actually been a a large number of cases of people taking NAC while they're pregnant. If they are, I don't recommend more than 600 milligrams. Uh, But uh, there are some individuals because N-acetylcysteine has sulfur-containing amino acids, Mm -hmm. they can have a little bit of nausea uh, they might have an upset stomach if they take it, particularly on an empty stomach. They might get some GI symptoms of diarrhea or constipation. And of course, if they're having this and it's persistent, then don't take it. Let's go through some of the other modalities that can be helpful.
0: Excellent. Well, a couple questions came in, again, coming back to the antioxidants and the dose that should actually be given? Particularly right now, as many people are afraid to go to their physicians, they're a little nervous about going to, you know, just to be exposed potentially, you know, just to find out what their vitamin D or their zinc levels are. Do you have any recommendations for patients who just may want to, or people that may want to take some antioxidants over the counter as far as doses are concerned?
5: Well, the nice thing about Uh, zinc is it's not near as toxic as what it was once thought to be. In fact, virtually all of these symptoms that are talked about of zinc toxicity are due to copper deficiency, because zinc in excess can lower copper. But copper excess is a far greater problem than zinc excess. And so uh, taking, you know, 20 milligrams a day is certainly very safe and effective. Uh, We would recommend if you want to build it up uh, further, uh, even 100 milligrams a day is safe. We have individuals that have copper excess Mm -hmm. that they're taking two to 400 milligrams a day, and that's fine. The main issue with zinc is nausea, and uh, that can be um, actually eliminated by taking it right after a meal in most cases or right before going to bed. If You go to sleep, you don't get the nausea. Uh, Excellent. uh, but uh, yeah, there's not really an issue with zinc toxicity like there was uh, thought to be in the past.
0: Great. Are there any specific vitamins that you would recommend that we haven't mentioned so far?
5: Well, vitamin D, of course, is a very uh, potent antioxidant um, a vitamin and has some very positive immune modulating effects. Uh, vitamin A uh, as well, vitamin E. Mm-hmm. Uh, these antioxidant vitamins are also healthy and even the trace mineral selenium uh, could have some benefit as well.
0: Excellent. Another question came in as far as antioxidants in raw versus cooked foods or dried vegetables, particularly kale chips. Is it better to eat the raw kale or can we eat kale chips?
5: Well, we can know get my it my
0: preference uh, is personally, but
5: <laughs> Well, we can get it both ways. Actually, the way Erica makes uh, kale uh, it's very just lightly uh, steamed, and the way she does it, everybody likes the kale. It's uh, it's really as popular as kale chips per se, and it would have some uh, advantages uh, over the kale chips. But in reality, it's better to get kale, whether it's cooked or raw, than not getting it at all.
0: Excellent. Benefits of garlic, we've heard a lot of those, you shared with us some of them, but one of our viewers was curious, what about garlic? And the next question directly related to that, does it transfer in breast milk?
5: Okay, well, garlic is of course, a very uh, potent antioxidant uh, vegetable. It's actually the most potent that we know of. And in addition, it has some antiviral activity in and of itself, also some antibacterial activity. And so garlic is great. And of course, uh, cooked is uh, maybe not quite as good as raw, but almost as good. And of course, you don't have the disadvantage of the odor of your breath uh, when it's cooked versus uh, when it's raw. And in regards to does uh, it uh, pass over to um, the mother's milk? Was that the question? Or were correct. we Correct,
0: about- does it pass through breast milk? That's correct. Yes. Yeah.
5: It does pass through breast milk, and uh, your baby can benefit from it as well. But uh, it may decrease the flavor of the breast
6: milk.
0: This is absolutely the case. But you know what? The benefits are definitely there. Green tea. We've been told many times that green tea is an amazing antioxidant. Do you recommend green tea as similar to some of these other antioxidants that we've just been discussing?
5: Well, green tea does have antioxidants, uh, but it uh, tends to also have caffeine. And, of course, that's the benefit-risk ratio. And we look for things that are only going to have the benefits uh, without the risks. Now, there is an active ingredient in green tea called ECGC that can be helpful in certain uh, malignancies, leukemia, things of that nature. And we would give that just in capsule form that's separate from the caffeine, so we don't have to have that effect.
0: And that's a perfect prelude to the next question. Chocolate has a compound in it, theobromine specifically, that acts similar to caffeine. Would you recommend avoiding chocolate as well?
5: I would avoid uh, chocolate not so much for the theobromine, but for the sugar content and the saturated fat content. Uh, a cocoa uh, eaten by itself is not uh, palatable. Uh, For most people, it's it's very bitter. And so in order to get it palatable, we have to pour a lot of sugar and a lot of fat into it. And the sugar is going to be immune suppressing. And even the saturated fat can be as well.
0: Excellent. What role do essential oils play? They're known for their antioxidants and antimicrobial properties, but do they also have immune optimizing agents or aspects as well?
5: They possibly do. Now, I'd like to, when I think of essential oils, I'm thinking of it from the medical nutritional standpoint, which are omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. Those are actually essential because uh, we can't live without those, and those are incorporated into our cells. But what the world sees as, "quotes essential oils are actually just uh, oils that can have some sort of potential therapeutic effect, like oil of oregano or those sorts of things. As far as omega-3 and omega-6, yes, we need those essential oils. As far as oil of oregano, yes, it could have um, and and may have some antiviral properties. Some other um, oils may as well. It's not as as well understood in regards to its positive effects like the omega-6 and omega-3.
0: Well, speaking of the lipid layer, another question came in. Some are recommending the use of linoleic acid due to the lipid layer of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Do you agree with that assumption?
5: Linoleic acid theoretically could have some benefit, particularly in the typical American meat eater, who is short in both omega-6 and omega-3. They have high cholesterol in their diets, high saturated fat but really not enough of the polyunsaturated fats to have the right lipid layer of their membranes. And so for people like that, um, yes, oil of evening primrose, which is linoleic acid, can be uh, very um, healthy for them and particularly may have some antiviral and anti-COVID properties. And the same goes for omega-3, but for different reasons. Uh, The omega-3 can really attenuate um, the... Um, oxidative stress response, and it's anti-inflammatory. Omega-6 tends to be more pro-inflammatory, particularly in excess, but omega-3 is anti-inflammatory and could theoretically help prevent that COVID storm.
0: And speaking of these omega oils, we have another question coming in as far as fish oil is concerned. How about fish oil to prevent SARS-CoV-2? Is flax oil a safe alternative to fish oil?
5: Okay. All of those are going to have omega-3. Uh, the flax oil is going to have the, the medium chain omega-3s, and the fish oil um, will have uh, particularly the lawn chains, uh, the EPA and the PHA, 20 carbon and 22 carbon in length. But fish actually do not make that themselves. They get it from the plants of the waters. And so the problem with getting it in fish is that we are also getting toxins, the toxins that are in the water are concentrated a thousand to a million fold in the fat of fish. And then we go through this great expensive process to try to remove mercury and all of those sorts of things, which it cannot be removed entirely. And so we end up getting a very expensive fish oil that actually has more mercury than if we got it straight from the plants of the waters. And so, if you're talking about supplementing long chain omega 3s, I would use a supplement like Opti3 or New IQ that comes straight from the plants of the waters. It has um, the benefits without the risks of fish oil.
0: Fascinating. Questions about fasting. You had mentioned in your nutrition section the benefits of intermittent fasting, specifically as far as the immune system. Can you elaborate for us a little bit on that?
5: Yes, intermittent fasting actually has been shown to increase natural killer cells, double or triple them over the short term. And that's part of the innate immune system. Monocytes are also increased. And so uh, this is why if we know we're facing an infectious battle, it's actually better to fast. Often we're not hungry. You know, when we, uh, in fact, that's one of the symptoms of of COVID-19 is that you just have anorexia and you don't want to eat. And that actually is a sign that you really shouldn't eat. Uh, (laughs) And uh, your immune system would be able to fight that off better. So we recommend uh, up to 72-hour fast, 24-hour fast is normally all that's needed, and then maybe more fruits, things that are not going to be really high in protein, particularly those first three days. uh, And that can actually have some positive effects on the immune system. If it's over 72 hours, you definitely need to have a medically supervised fast because then you can start uh, breaking down the body and running into uh, more issues uh, with that. But most individuals can undergo a one to three day fast without medical supervision and it actually can be system.
0: And speaking of a modified fast, two meals a day, you mentioned that um, in your nutrition talk as well. What times of the day would you recommend as far as the best times to eat these two meals?
5: Yeah, the time-restricted feeding that's best, in other words, where you restrict any feeding is going to be afternoon and evening. And so we recommend a good, healthy breakfast, a good, healthy lunch early in the afternoon, and then nothing to eat in the evening. This is a good way to be able to lose weight and stay your ideal weight without gaining it back. It also puts you into ketosis, which actually has some benefits as far as neuroimmunology is concerned. BDNF, for instance, goes up as a result of this um, 12 to um, 17 hour um, daily fast. And it does have um, some advantages that have been shown in uh, cancer reduction, in other words, If you've had a response to like breast cancer treatments, you're gonna be far less likely to develop breast cancer again if you're on this ketosis uh, type of regimen. And for the same reason, it could have some benefits in regards to infectious um, agents as well.
0: Fascinating. One additional question as far as fasting, the opposite being snacking. What effect does snacking have on the immune system?
5: Well, that's, that is a good question, and it actually does not have a very good effect. So this six-meal-a-day program that's been shown actually is not an immune-enhancing uh, regimen, and one of the reasons for that is our gastrointestinal tract is vitally important in regards to our immune system, and the majority of our lymphatics are right there in the small intestinal area, and we need rest. For those immune system cells, those T cells and B cells to be able to perform optimally. And when we're eating six small meals a day, we do see some suppressant effects on the uh, lymphatic immune system.
0: Fascinating. Well, another modality that we uh, also talked about in the 1918 pandemic was specifically exercise. Now, in those institutions, they put their patients primarily on sort of a modified bed rest. When we're talking about exercise, we, we talked about the benefits. What are the best forms of exercise as we're looking more of a preventative measure?
5: This is your aerobic exercise, your endurance exercise. And this is what's going to have the direct role in regards to the mitochondria. You know, aggressive um, non-aerobic exercise, which is really meant to build up muscles, actually causes an inflammatory response. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the muscles look so big and people like to take pictures right after working out is because there's actually an inflammatory response to the muscles breaking down from excessive exercise And then you have all of these white cells coming in and edema and those sorts of things. And this is not what we'd wanna have if we're getting exposed to to COVID or an infection like that. But the aerobic exercise that's not overly done, we mentioned how marathon running can actually suppress the immune system, but running up to eight miles a day or walking, now you walking, brisk walking, you can do that for 20 or 30 miles a day, and that's very healthy. Uh, that's one of the advantages of walking over running is that you can do it healthfully for more, um, you know, lengths uh, than you can um, running. And, of course, swimming is healthy. Bicycling as well. Eighty percent of our skeletal muscles are there in the legs. And so these are all exercises involving the, those big, large skeletal muscles to improve mitochondria and to have that, um, that improved uh, success that we talked about. Uh, that comes with endurance
0: exercises. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. As always, it's a pleasure to learn from you. Your experience is amazing. We look forward to a couple more questions from you in the hospital practical section. But again, thank you for joining us and thank you for providing your insight.
5: Great to be with you.
0: Thank you. We heard a little bit about exercise with Dr. Nedley. We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about hydrothermal therapy. Hydrothermal therapy really is water, that's done externally. Of course, we don't want to forget the benefits of water taken internally as well. Well, now let's dive a little deeper as far as exercise. Let's answer some of the questions that you have specifically to exercise. I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel. Dr. Zeno is an internal medicine specialist. He's also an adjunct professor at Loma Linda University, and he works at the General Conference at the World Church for Seventh-day Adventists for Health. Thank you, Dr. Zeno, for joining us.
7: My pleasure and my privilege.
0: Thank you. Now, we were just talking a little bit about exercise. How often and how long should one exercise to optimize their immune function?
7: Okay. Well, um, Dr. Nedley just gave a, a very good summary of some of the issues revolving around exercise. But if we're talking about mixed exercise, the part that would be the most important for purposes of the immune function is we're looking at the aerobic part of exercise, even though the best exercise is a combination of aerobic and resistance and even isometric exercises. Nonetheless, uh, there there is a sweet spot, so to speak, somewhere around 45 to 60 minutes of moderately intense exercise uh, per day, uh, five days a week. Uh, That usually would be enough to stimulate the immune response that we're looking for.
0: Excellent. Next question as far as the COVID patient is concerned. Is it better to exercise or utilize bed rest? Now, Dr. Nedley mentioned a little bit about that as far as a healing process is concerned. But given uh, the effect on the exertion of the heart, what would you recommend is the best for the COVID patient?
7: Okay. Um, There, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, We have to consider at what stage that patient would be. If the person is in a pre-symptomatic stage, uh, then exercise would be most prudent. If they are mildly symptomatic, and that is they don't require hospitalization, then exercise there would also be prudent. However, once they get to the phase where they need to be hospitalized, and certainly when they get to the intensive care unit, then bed rest is the more prudent uh, approach to take. You see, part of the issue is that uh, people with uh, with this particular syndrome, they develop cardiac anomalies, arrhythmias. Uh, one patient even had a cardiac rupture, okay? Um, th- these are not things that you typically see with, uh, with normal individuals. So there is an immunologic response uh, to the uh, SARS-CoV-2 that uh, can stimulate the uh, a myositis. We also now see that some children are having a, a, an immunologic type problem that might be associated. Right. It's similar to Kawasaki's disease. Uh, right. So it's Kawasaki-like. Uh, so that's something that we're keeping an eye on. And certainly under those circumstances, bed rest would be most prudent. And uh, of course, there are some individuals who, because of uh, their underlying heart disease, that needs to be taken into account
0: as well. And along these same lines, is it possible to over-exercise? This was kind of alluded to a few minutes ago as well.
7: Uh-huh. Well, uh, yes, it is possible to over-exercise. Uh, there are some d- debate still in the literature regarding how much exercise is over-exercising. But uh, let me just try to simplify. It is uh, less than 45 minutes uh, a day, five days or five or six days a week uh, will be considered uh you know suboptimal forty five to sixty minutes is about the optimal, and about two hours of moderately intense exercise is about the amount that will give you the benefit you see part of the 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 issue is that uh, when they looked at uh, back in the nineties when they looked at the uh, development of upper respiratory infections and looking at uh, secretory i g a uh, they found that these were decreased after intense exercise. So people doing marathon running and things like that, they ended up with, uh, with an increase in upper respiratory infections, and they used that as the marker for a depressed immune function. Now, so if you're not uh, in the line of running marathons, uh, we say basically up to about two hours of exercise would be safe for just about anyone, assuming that you have the cardiovascular and the uh, and the musculoskeletal uh, apparatus to be able to do that uh, exercise for that long. More than that, you can end up with injuries, you can end up with uh, depression of your immune system, even though that's debatable, and you can also develop something that is called uh, uh, runner's psychosis. Uh, there are some people who become addicted to running and they start planning their day around their runs as opposed to planning their runs within their days. Uh, So that's a a psychological issue that can develop too.
0: They're at the runner's high, you know. Yes. (laughs) Along those lines, does intense aerobic exercise for 30 minutes increase oxidative stress?
7: Yes, it does. Um, uh, You're asking me questions that are not that easy to to give a, a short answer to, but let me say this. Uh, almost any exercise that we do will increase the amount of reactive oxygen species. That is, it will cause some uh, issue. However, the body is able to handle this. This is a normal physiologic process. So up to 30 minutes uh, of exercise, of moderately intense uh, exercise, is supposed to be normal. So even though you're producing uh, oxidative stress, the body is able to handle that. Uh, when you get beyond the two-hour mark, on the other hand, then your ability to handle it may not be as, uh, as well adapted to take care of it, and therefore you end up with the negative or the potentially negative uh, parts of that, especially for people who are not trained.
0: Excellent. Well, it's very exciting to talk about exercise, and I wish we had more time. We'll have to revisit that in our upcoming, again, Level Up, because it is a very... Very important topic. Well, we also want to talk about ultraviolet radiation. There's been a lot of Mm, mm. have come in from that. Again, we're talking about all these different modalities that were utilized in 1918 in the sanitariums or the Seventh day Avenue institutions. And we've again seen them to be scientifically in some ways, applicable to our current COVID-19 crisis. Well, let's talk about sunlight or ultraviolet radiation. Some questions came in specifically, what is the best body part to have exposure to sunlight in order to have the best vitamin D conversion? That's a hard one.
7: <laughs> well, uh, I don't think that I have seen any literature suggesting the best body part. Uh, <laughs> what <laughs> what what I have uh, seen and what what seems to be most reasonable, is that uh, exposure of most of the body, assuming that um, uh, it's legal where you are to expose your body, right? Uh, Exposure of most of the body uh, to direct sunlight for a short space of time uh, should give you uh, the exposure that is needed. Now, here here is the thing. People tend to have sunburn in particular areas they tend to have sunburn on the face and they tend to have sunburn on the tops of the ears mm-hmm. and on their scalp if they're bald or they're getting bald like me, right? So if, if this is an issue, then you need to protect those areas and they would not be the best places for you to try to, uh, uh, to get um, your vitamin D created from. And any part of the body that is exposed that uh, that then becomes sunburnt this is not good. It doesn't matter what the complexion of the skin is. It doesn't it, it for anyone being out in the sun to get sunburned is not good. Any part of the body at any time.
0: And that leads to the next question. What's the best time to get vitamin D conversion from ultraviolet light?
7: Okay. Now I don't know if the person who sent that uh, question in gave any indication to where they where they're from, I, I would assume not. So no. I'll I'll have to to talk about the the whole uh, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, there are depending on where you are geographically, where you are uh, in terms of your uh, degree of of latitude. If you're above the thirty seventh degrees. Or below thirty-seven degrees. That is where we have the Cancer of uh, the the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. If you're outside of that, to the north or to the south of that, uh, you will have difficulty getting enough vitamin uh, Vitamin D from sunshine because, depending on the time of year that uh, you are in, what season, uh, the sun may not give enough direct radiation for you to get enough UVB. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one thing. The altitude that you are would have a uh, would play a part. Uh, also. Uh, The amount of pollution in the air uh, plays a part. The season of the year plays a part. So all of these things make a difference. Given all of that, if someone is below, if the person is in the United States and they're below Atlanta, okay, they Hmm. should be able to get enough vitamin D. And if their skin complexion is on the light side, okay, that person with 10 to 15 minutes uh, of, uh, of sun exposure to the face, to the arms, to the back, to the chest, to the abdomen, to the legs. Uh, that should be enough for the person to make uh, vitamin D, assuming that they have all of the other things in place, okay? And the other things in place means that uh, they don't have an inborn metabolic condition that uh, that causes uh, vitamin D to be uh, uh, transport systems to not work or things like that, Okay.
0: Excellent. Well, along those same lines, vitamin D levels uh, sometimes are noted to be lower in darker skin populations. Could this be somehow related? We talked about some of the racial disparities in COVID. Could this mm-hmm. be one of the factors related to these, some of these racial disparities that we've seen?
7: Yeah, I, I believe that uh, it might be associated, but I don't think that it's the whole story. Okay. Uh, the, the, even the issue of, of, uh, of skin complexion, and vitamin D levels is, is interesting. The, the studies uh, that I'm most familiar with have looked at people in the United States, uh, African-Americans in the United States and other people of color in the United States, and also in uh, in Switzerland, okay, of all places, looking at people with uh, with uh, varying skin shades. And they were looking in pregnant people, so that, that's uh, up your alley, <laughs> all right? But what they found was that the darker skin you had the lower your vitamin D levels, and one might say, well, okay, then then that that seals it. But that is not the that's not the same situation when people in sub-Saharan Africa and in other parts, even North Africa, are checked with regard to their uh, their vitamin D levels. They may have dark skin, but their vitamin D levels are above what you would find people with vitamin D uh, levels in the United States. Okay so it's it's not really an ethnic issue per se unless there is some ethnic drift as someone moves from uh from Africa or uh the, the Indian subcontinent or from South America to North America that something else is happening uh with them so it's not just that so i would i would say while this may be part of the of the uh explanation it is not the whole thing And the social determinants of health uh, may actually be playing a more significant role, even though, again, that may not be the whole story either.
0: Well, I think that sounds like an additional topic for our upcoming Level Up. So we will definitely have you back again with us, Dr. Zeno. Again, it's a pleasure to hear from you, work with you. Um, And again, thank you for all of your amazing lectures and and your input that you've provided. Thank
7: you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lila.
0: Thank you. Up next, again, we have another topic that we've discussed. It's the relationship of sleep or rest. Now we've talked about, let's just review very quickly. We've talked about hydrothermal therapy, which again is external water treatment, not forgetting the internal water treatment. Again, reviewing nutritional principles, exercise, and ultraviolet radiation. We want to talk now about sleep. Let's bring back our good friend, Dr. Roger Schwelt, pulmonologist and intensivist dealing with COVID patients on a day-to-day basis. Dr. Schwelt, we have several questions as far as sleep or rest are concerned. You recommended in your lecture, no naps. A question came in regarding naps. Haven't siestas been noted to have some benefit, particularly even immunologic benefit?
2: Yeah, so siestas, naps... I don't have a problem with anybody taking a nap so long as they don't have a problem with insomnia. So that's the key is I limit the say no naps to those that have insomnia. And the reason why I say that is because of this substance called adenosine. Adenosine is a substance that builds in your body throughout the day and it is the highest right before you go to bed and it's a drive for you to go to sleep problem is is that if you have insomnia the inability to fall asleep or stay asleep you need as much adenosine as you possibly can get when you are trying to go to sleep the problem is is that a nap will temporarily reduce your levels of adenosine and you'll have to try to build them up later um, as you go towards the evening time so i restrict patients to no naps if they have
0: insomnia I see. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Um, next question is, as far as the, the body is concerned, you talked about double the amount of sleep for those who get sleep before midnight. So the question is, if an individual goes to bed at 10 p.m. and wakes up at 4 a.m., do you get eight hours of sleep? And if so, can you clarify how that's the case?
2: Yeah, you still get the same amount of sleep, but don't, uh, don't misunderstand that those hours of sleep are not all the same in terms of the benefit that you get. We know that slow-wave sleep, which is concentrated at the beginning of the night, is very, very important in terms of restorative physical sleep. It's coupled with growth hormone secretion. And so those hours of sleep towards the beginning of the night are also tied to your circadian rhythm. And so if you're skipping out on those, you may be skipping out on slow wave sleep and so generally speaking if you get tired around 10 o'clock at night and you get up at six o'clock in the morning those slow wave hours of sleep are going to be rich in that 10 p.m to 1 a.m range and if you don't if you aren't sleeping you're not going to get that benefit
0: and i remember we talked about that book ministry of healing you know a lot of these principles that we're talking about right now were listed or written in that book quite some time ago and utilized in the 1918 pandemic at the various sanitariums. So it's interesting. I don't think the, that kind of research was available back in 1918 or even before that, but, um, but it's fascinating that that kind of research is coming out today. Absolutely. Uh, do you advise waking up early for the elderly? I know we talked about going to bed early and going getting up early. Sometimes the elderly sleep cycle is a little different than, than the younger populations.
2: Yes, uh, elderly tend to go to bed and get up earlier, so long as they don't have a problem with it, so long as their bed partner is doing the same thing and and they're getting along fine. If they're not disturbed with it, I don't recommend any change. If, however, it is causing social problems, for instance, they want to stay up later and they can't, um, well, that's usually pretty easy to fix just by exposing your eyes to light in the evening will delay your circadian rhythm so that you can stay up later, But, Layla, that's not usually the issue that we have. We don't usually see that kind of a problem. We see the opposite problem. We see people uh, on their electronic devices getting blue light, leaving the lights on. This evil, as it said, of turning night into day causes their circadian rhythms to be pushed back. And so you're not really finding yourself needing to fall asleep until 1 or 2 in the morning. But unfortunately... Well, as we get back to uh, normalcy here, you're going to have to fight traffic, get up at five in the morning to try to get into work. And that really limits your sleep on both ends.
0: Absolutely. Now, speaking of that, is it good to take melatonin supplements for insomnia for those individuals having a hard time going to sleep? Or is it better to just to get it from food, sunlight exposure and sleep?
2: All of those things are good. Melatonin is not a regulated substance. So it's hard to find out whether or not you're actually getting it. Um, melatonin is a great medication to take for people who have a difficult time falling asleep. Unfortunately, it's pretty short-acting; it won't necessarily keep you asleep. There's other medications that that work on that, but a small dose at night of three to five milligrams, no more than that, um, can, it can sometimes cause problems. It's also a great antioxidant, as Dr. Nedley has told us in the past on prior symposiums. But there's nothing wrong with taking a small dose of melatonin try to fall asleep melatonin also has the effect of advancing your circadian rhythm so if you have an issue with falling asleep very very late and you want to try to fall asleep a little bit earlier taking that maybe an hour or two before bedtime is also very beneficial
0: excellent and what are the risks associated with melatonin supplementation
2: yeah not much um, but if you take too high of a dose or too much of a dose it can make you irritated, Um, that's a a known side effect, and not irritated because it's not helping, uh, just actually can make you more irritable.
0: Okay, well, very good. Well, we we are very excited, and thank you so much, Dr. Schwelt, for all of your great information. We have a couple more questions from a practical perspective on the hospital setting, both for yourself and Dr. Nedley. Mm -hmm. There's our there's Dr. Nedley, wonderful. So again, this is for hospitalized patients, and it's your experience serving as hospitalist or intensivist, um, as is your case, uh, Dr. Schwelt. So in phase three, this question is for Dr. Schwelt. In phase three, where the patients are already intubated, are you using intravenous vitamin C and chest hydrothermal therapy?
2: Yeah. Not only that, Layla, we're also giving um, zinc. We're also giving an acetylcysteine, although I don't really know if we have an appropriate dose on that as yet. Um, we're giving it intravenously for those that t- can't take it orally. We're, we're throwing the kitchen sink at these patients who are on the ventilator because really uh, these people have a really high mortality rate.
0: Okay. And how are your results? Have you noticed anything? Obviously you don't have any case controlled studies, but just curious as how your results are showing up.
2: No, some of them are, are, are dying. Some of them are getting better. Um, it's, we see it on both extremes. I will say that most of the patients that are ending up on the ventilator are not so much the patients that I would have thought would be ending up on the ventilator. It's not my asthmatics and my COPD ears for the most part. These are patients with cardiovascular, diabetes, large BMIs. These are the type of patients that I'm seeing on the ventilator.
0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Schwell. Dr. Nedley, does increasing viscosity agents such as alcohol and dietary, um, dietary fat adversely affect COVID patients, particularly if the coagulation hypothesis is true?
5: Well, once again, we don't know for sure, but certainly there's um, enough evidence in regards to other infections that we know that alcohol and dietary fat in excess are problems. We mentioned, uh, I think, last week in regards to all of the issues that alcohol causes, it increases the risk of pneumonia, increases the risk of death from pneumonia, uh, and uh, it uh, very likely, uh, being the toxin that it is, uh, actually increases the risk of death from COVID-19 as well. And so this is one agent that you might be able to use on your hands to get rid of COVID-19 but you don't want to ingest it. And that pretty much uh, is the case for anything that you are going to use to disinfect your hands. You don't necessarily want to ingest it, whether it's soap uh, or whether it's alcohol.
0: Very good point. We've had a few cases of that recently of people doing some things that probably they shouldn't take into their body and getting very, very ill, trying to protect themselves. So Dr. Schwelt, another question. Are you using steam inhalation in the hospital and community setting um, as far as a treatment or prevention uh, for COVID?
2: No, not using steam inhalation. Uh, In that sense, I I will have to admit that um, I was tempted to ask the respiratory therapist to turn up the humidifier, the heated humidifier on the ventilator um, to sort of help out with uh, hydrotherapy. Uh, but that's um, not really uh, too much of a deviation from what they're doing already. We already give them heated humidification on the ventilator. So uh, no, we're not doing that.
0: And I think that that's a good clarification. There's been different ideas out there and I think we should probably address that just very briefly. Is it safe um, to use a, um, again, it's um, a little unusual question, but is it safe to use a hairdryer um, to increase the temperature um, of, of your respiratory tract and thereby try to fight off uh, COVID-19.
2: It's going to be uh, dry air that you're pushing in there at a very hot amount. Uh, th- some of those hair dryers can get very, very hot. And, um, you know, I, I haven't seen, I think I've seen one study that would, looked at this a number of years ago and they used a device that was uh, not a hair blow dryer, uh, but rather a device that used humidified air. They actually did show an improvement in symptoms of the cold, but it was, it was actually published in the British Medical Journal. So it was a very um, prestigious journal. And they did find that there was some subjective improvement, but I don't think that's been done in this type of a virus.
0: And I think we just want to all get the point across that we want to be wise. Um, steam is hot. Uh, hair dryers are hot and we wouldn't want to cause any damage to our respiratory tract. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And we'll look forward to continuing to uh, depend upon your expertise as we continue to want to improve our holistic health. So thank you. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Well, next we're going to be talking about self-restraint. And we've talked another term that was utilized in 1918. We learned before was temperance. Well, it's essentially self-restraint using those things that are good for us moderately, but avoiding things that are harmful for us. We learned last week that, by taking into our body certain substances, it interferes with the effect of our frontal lobe and thereby makes it harder for us to make improved changes in our health, such as we want to improve our nutrition, we want to improve our exercise and our ultraviolet radiation. But when we take certain substances in, it affects our frontal lobe and it makes it, us less likely and our circle Goes the opposite direction. Well, we want to invite our friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Landless. He's a cardiologist. He's also in charge of health for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Globally. Dr. Landless, thank you so much for joining us.
6: It's a pleasure, Lila. Good to see you again.
0: Good to see you as well. Well, you mentioned last week that the some of the detriments of some of these substances, particularly alcohol. The question came in: is it isn't the use of moderate use of alcohol safe and possibly even cardioprotective? And we would like to ask you that question.
6: Well, this is the conversation that I've had so many times with so many patients across the desk where uh, they would come along to me and say, Doc, a little alcohol just for my heart's sake. And, uh, you know, one would look at some of the literature. They said we have been reading the Reader's Digest and some of them had been reading cardiological literature. And uh, yes, there have been reports showing some cardioprotective benefits to alcohol um, as far as coronary artery disease is concerned, and even in the incidence of diabetes. Having said that, um, one needs to remember that those effects were not not uniform across age groups Mm -hmm. and uh, not replicable across all society. And um, many of the studies that were quoted and have been re-looked at have shown that there were not this, there were many confounding factors. The confounding factors being um, level of education, health insurance, uh, availability of health care, uh, pre-existing disease, pre-existing alcohol use, and then having stopped because of illness reasons. So... When all those confounding influences had been removed, there was actually found to be very little, if any, cardiac benefit. Now, there have been many who continue to say, well, the moderate drinking. Until 2018, a landmark study came out in The Lancet, which looked at many, many thousands of patients, many studies, and showed that not only is it, the seventh leading cause of death across the world globally and disability years, but also the leading cause of death between the age of 15 and 49.
0: Wow.
6: So we're looking at death by accident, overdose, Mm -hmm. trauma, murder, all those things. So not one system is spared. The conclusion of that august body and many others to say what is the safe level of alcohol intake because of cancer, cardiac, cardiovascular issues, all the other problems, zero. The zero level of alcohol intake is what the authors of the Lancet article were constrained to say. So they said, there's gotta be a lot of policy revision. Otherwise there's gonna be a lot of unnecessary death. So there's your answer.
0: Well, I, I have a question as far as the current COVID crisis is concerned. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing an increase in drug and alcohol dependence during the current crisis? People are socially isolated, depression, anxiety tend to be on the rise. What are you seeing as far as as far as those substances right now?
6: Well, when you use the word dependence, we're not yet sure if they are dependent or they're just continuing to use it
0: uh-huh. and
6: And what is, what has happened is and it was noted by March 15 there was a particular alcohol outlet in the United States, which showed an increase in 55% of alcoholic beverage purchases in their business, very big one. Mm -hmm. In Canada, they've noticed up to an 11.5 increase in the use of alcohol. At the same time, Pornhub has shown an 11% increase in visits to pornography. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're also seeing that Domestic violence, the injuries that um, that have been not reported related to domestic violence and abuse. Now that everyone's under lockdown, people aren't seeing that. It right. doesn't mean that it's not occurring. So the answer, the short answer is sadly yes. WHO has warned, and many health organisations are predicting, unfortunately, and I believe correctly, that following the lockdown and the opening up we are going to see a tsunami of mental health issues, addictions, and problems related to alcohol and other dependencies following COVID-19.
0: And that's a perfect segue to the next question. We're seeing a rise in vaping and marijuana use, particularly in the younger populations. Are we noting that this is putting them at an increased risk, these younger populations, for COVID-19?
6: Well, you know, we Looking at a very new disease, COVID-19 is new. Coronavirus itself is not new. We've seen it before, and it comes in various forms and guises. However, there are basic principles of pathophysiology which are still very much in play. So when you have the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, coming Mm -hmm. along, what does it do? It causes inflammation, affects and damages, and destroys lung tissue. What does vaping do? Vaping does exactly the same. What does tobacco do? Does exactly the same. What does marijuana inhalation do? Well, if you smoke it, does exactly the same. And there was a very interesting uh, phenomenon which took place in 2018 uh, called the E Valley. E Valley was uh, e cigarette or vaping product use associated with lung injury. There was an a- outbreak that sent more than 2,800 people to the hospital and killed 68 across the United States. The disease called permanent lung damage and resulted in at least one double lung transplant.
7: Mm. So
6: the basic inflammatory changes which COVID causes, vaping causes, smoking inhalation causes, so the Conclusion is that putting this all together and studies starting very early in the pandemic right in Wuhan showed that smokers and China has 55% of the, of the men in China smoke. Mm-hmm. It showed a significant negative impact on COVID-19. So for young um, people, yes. it's a real problem and for older.
0: And I think that's that's a very good point. You know, there's so many people that are hurting right now, and I know you have a lot of programs there at the General Conference of Seventh Day Adventists, and on our different locations throughout the world. Addiction is not just alcohol; it's not just tobacco; it's not just drugs. There's many other forms of addiction: gambling. You talked about sex addictions, lots of different things. Unfortunately, people are turning to right now because of the depression and the anxiety where can they go to get additional assistance for addiction recovery?
6: That is a very important question and a really problematic one because so often people don't want to go for help or they don't feel they have the freedom to go and ask for help. And when when you use the term self-restraint, temperance, the using of, all things healthy wisely, and all things harmful, avoiding those things. Yet in so many, there's also the additional constraint of a genetic component as well. There's also the addictive component, but others struggle even more than some. So where do we go? Often people will go to a church instance, they'll go to a pastor, they may go to an imam, they may go to a temple, they may seek help. Uh, Other places that people go to, they may go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They may seek help from one of those organizations, which is very helpful. Um, The Sydney Adventist Church has a very strong emphasis on the importance of being there for recovery ministries. And Adventist Recovery Ministries Global, Armin Global, Armin North America, Adventist Recovery Ministries as well, has a very meaningful program, and a number of churches throughout the world have adopted the program and are adopting the program to become a haven where people can go and get help. There's a very important component as well, is we in general, not only in the church setting or in a specific denominational setting, but in a community setting, we need to have our eyes and ears open and available and be ready to extend a helping hand. This is one of the hugest problems people face is not having someone who cares enough to help. And that's where we can make a difference. Sadly, many of the uh, detox programs cost a huge amount of money. We actually doing mainly recovery programs, But the actual detoxing programs, they are limited availability, uh, very costly in many settings. But uh, we do try and recommend that our churches involve themselves very, very importantly in reaching out and making safe havens where people can come once a week and help to stay recovered.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Landless. What we're going to do so that if any viewer today finds themselves in, and we all have addictions, let's face it. We might not have this specific kind of addictions that we've been discussing here, but we all have ways that we would like to improve our health. Things that we're tempted with, whether that be some of the substances that we were talking about just now, or maybe some of the nutritional aspects in life. What we will be doing, Dr. Landless, is listing on our website, awr.org forward slash health, if it's okay with you, locations sure, of where people can go. So we will sure. be definitely doing that. Thank you so much. For I, would all need
6: to, I would need to add just one thing, which is hugely important.
0: Yes, sir. In the, in the
6: Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about the higher power. We would be remiss not to encourage people. We say, where do we go? It may sound almost, well, we've heard this all before. We can turn to God. And yes. I think it's at times like this particularly that when we feel that every avenue has failed to reach out, to reach up, to cast ourselves at his mercy, and ask for the help. And so many people have recovered, relying on him as the highest power. So let's never forget that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Landless. We appreciate it, and we'll we'll continue to look forward to inviting you back on Level Up. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you. God bless you.
0: Thank you. God bless you too. So speaking of the holistic approach that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has taken, it actually began um, back in the 1860s. And some of the, again, these principles that we've been talking about, everything from nutrition to exercise to sunshine, and yes, self-restraint were talked about in the 19, in practiced, I dare say, in the 1918 pandemic at those sanitariums with such good results. Well, we have next with us my very good friend, my mentor and my colleague, Dr. Richard Hart. Dr. Hart is an internal medicine specialist. He is the chief executive officer and the president of Loma Linda University, my alma mater. Dr. Hart, we've talked about the effect on these sanitariums utilizing these principles, these holistic health principles. How long has the Seventh-day Adventist Church been teaching these principles of health?
3: When I first started walking us into this whole understanding along with Sylvester Graham, Graham Crackers, and others clear back in the 1860s, 1870s. Um, and then but the formal program really started with john harvey kellogg at battle creek uh, in the 1860 80 70 80 and so on the first medical school started there brad creek and a sanitarium with dr kellogg and then Home omelette started in 1905 uh, and again it's long and storied history of not only preparing health professionals but started doing research on this stuff as well the significant research really started about 65 years ago now in the 1950s with Dr. Lemon, Frank Lemon, and Richard Walden in what was the first called the Adventist mortality study, uh, which looked, compared to what Adventists were dying of compared to what community people were dying of. Uh, and that was uh, discovered at that time that there's the things we thought would probably be true, that uh, Adventists live longer and so on. So that's when that's that's when the research really started uh, building up and then developing some solid principles backed by science.
0: Excellent. And along those lines, currently there's uh, research, I believe, as far as scientific research to indicate that these principles not only affect our immunity but other aspects of health, with Adventist health studies in particular. Yes. What uh,
3: in the night? 19- in 1974, uh, Dr. Rodi Phillips, one of our faculty here, professor of epidemiology, developed what we came to call Adventist Health Study 1, uh, enlisting 30,000 Adventists across California uh, to look at their impact and their health status um, and discovered that in fact, uh, there was many things were happening. It was actually funded to look at cancer, but they quickly discovered that heart disease was less, uh, many other autoimmune diseases were less, because of the plant-based diet, the sort of emphasis that the Adventist church put on a plant-based diet. This was followed uh, about 20 years later with Dr. Gary Fraser doing Adventist Health Study 2, which is still ongoing, uh, documenting the improvement that Adventists have in many of these diseases. Uh, Typically they're living seven to 10 years longer than a cohort match control in the community uh, because of largely the plant-based diet, as well as avoiding alcohol and tobacco and other sorts of things uh, that we do.
0: Fascinating. Now, there was a, a recent, um, in the last couple of years, a recent study and publication coming out about the blue zones. Can you tell us a little bit about Seventh-day Adventists and the blue zones there, particularly in Loma Linda?
3: Yes, a fellow by the name of Dan Butner, working for the National Geographic, started looking at where do people live the longest around the world? And he just discovered five places that people will live the longest, only one of those was in the United States, and that was called Loma Linda. Now, in fact, it was a study based upon the adventists in California, not just in Loma Linda, but this demonstrated that they were living 7 to 10 years longer than the average people uh, when they're matched for age and socioeconomic status. And that was because of the plant-based diet, the social connections, uh, the regular exercise, there was less obesity. Uh, there was many other variables that factored into this because of the Adventist lifestyle that gave that uh, added longevity.
0: That's amazing. Well, Dr. Hart, I just want to say a very, very special thank you to you. Thank you for everything that you do for training students like myself. Um, being able to go through medical school and residency and, and for continuing to purport these principles that, again, were founded a long time ago, but have, again, been found to be scientifically applicable for us today. So thank you, Dr. Hart.
3: Thank you. It's always a privilege to be with you, Lida.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hart. You know, that leaves me a big question in my mind. One of the main factors related to Loma Linda's Blue Zone was that it was a faith-based community. A Seventh-day Adventist faith-based community. We know that holistic health, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health is completely intertwined. They don't seem to be separated. In fact, if they are, one's total well-being is affected. I am excited to invite uh, my good friend, Dr. Mark Finley. Dr. Finley is a world-renowned speaker. He's also the Special Assistant to the President of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and has his Master's in Public Health as well. Dr. Finley, is there additional evidence besides what we've heard with the Blue Zone, with the Adventist Health Study, that spiritual health actually affects and improves physical and mental health?
6: Well, thank you, Leila.
8: It's always a delight to be with you. There have been over 200 studies that have looked at the relationship of religion and health. In fact, uh, Dr. Linda Powell, an epidemiologist at um, Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, took a look at those 150 studies, and she was looking at specifically mortality rates And what do these studies say about mortality rates between people who are religious and people that are not religious, people that go to church and people that don't go to church. She discovered that about the people that went to church and had a deep religious experience of prayer and Bible study, had a 25% less mortality than those that did not. Wow. So that was just taking a look at those 150 studies. Dr Harold Koning has made a really a life work in studying religion and health. Dr Koning is at Duke University and I'll give you just a couple of the studies that he has participated in. One was a study of 4000 older adults. It was a 6-year study and it was looking at blood pressure. And the question was do people who of faith do they have lower blood pressure than people who are not of faith? He discovered that those people that were attending religious services prayed and had a meaningful faith, studied their Bible, had 40% lower diastolic blood pressure, much less hypertension. So when you begin to look at multiple studies, there have been studies done on the immune system, and particularly interleukin-6, and uh, a study done in
1: 1986,
8: 1989, 1992, showing that there were much lower rates of uh, interleukin-6 plasma, um, which is, of course, an immune system marker. So when you take a look at the vast array of studies, uh, there, I think, is not much question when you look at the scientific data today that a positive religious experience where one views god as a loving god where one has a social connection in church that those studies indicate that is that religion is beneficial to health. that's
0: amazing that's amazing, Dr. Finley. And in, in this relationship, did you find specific relationships with those who actually regularly attend church and their physical and mental well being as well?
8: There are. There are. I'll give you just a couple of those. Um, here is one that was called the uh, Berkeley Human Population Study. So they took uh, 5,000 adults, they followed them for 28 years. And they took, they said, okay, when we look at these 5,000 adults. Let's take a look at the ones that go to church, the ones that don't go to church. This is what they discovered the ones that were f- faithful in their church attendance were much less likely to smoke. That means they had a lot less cancer, a lot less heart disease, they right. had more longevity. Secondly, and this was surprising, they, um, increased their exercising. So people that tended to go to church tended to exercise more than those that didn't. Um, They had increased social contacts so that their depression levels were less. And incidentally, they tended to stay married longer, reducing the stress of divorce, etc. So the uh, Berkeley Human Population Study is just one of the studies that have been done on Uh, religious people and their overall health. It's been found as well that they tend to have better diets. They believe their bodies are the temple of God. And there's an amazing passage in the book of Proverbs that kind of puts together physical health, mental health, and spiritual health, and really shows the relationship of faith and prayer and this belief in God with our own physical health. And in Proverbs chapter three, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Now listen to this, fear God, that is not fear in the sense of being afraid of, but respect God and depart from evil. What will the result be of that faith experience, that religious experience? It will be health to your flesh, and strength to your bones. So here, the ancient scriptures reveal what science is discovering today, that a meaningful faith experience with God is health to our bodies.
0: It's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Well, Dr. Finley, I, I must say that, you know, the principles that we've learned from 1918 pandemic, those novel lessons as we've discovered – really do pan out for our COVID-19 crisis. Would you mind giving us closing prayer as we close out (laughs) this last eighth doctor, trusting in God? You know, we've talked about all these other principles, everything from water, externally and internally, air, fresh air, our open spaces, we referred to it, nutrition, proper nutrition. We heard about a plant-based diet and all the antioxidants, avoiding those things that are harmful for us and doing those things that are good for us in moderation or temperance or self-restraint, rest, sleep, exercise, sunshine. But you know, there's that foundational principle, trusting in our higher power, our God. You know, I believe all seven of those other principles are built on that. And Dr. Finley, do you have a closing thought and a closing prayer for us? That would be wonderful.
8: You know, Layla, often there are individuals that would like to make changes in their life. They recognize that there are habits in their life that are detrimental to their health. They recognize as well that they like to make changes in their diet or in the issue of uh, self-restraint, smoking, drinking, alcohol. They want to get on a better exercise program. And sometimes they even make New Year's resolutions, but a month or two later, they don't have the power to put them into practice. One of the things I've found in dealing with people in the area of health is that to take that ideal and put it into practice, one needs a power beyond themselves. One needs a strength beyond themselves. And as we pray, I want to give our our participants that assurance. That every time we make a positive choice, it's God through his Holy Spirit that puts within our hearts that desire to make the positive choice. And the God that puts that in our hearts will give us the strength to carry out that choice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you Mm -hmm. for giving us positive, noble desires. We know every desire to treat our bodies as temples of God, every desire for good health comes from you that you prompt us with those positive desires we don't have the strength to do this on our own we ask you this very day that you'd give us strength give us power that's beyond human to put into practice these principles of health also help us to see our patients as whole human beings physical mental emotional and spiritual and help us to treat them with respect and dignity and lead them to the source of that higher power in God and help them to know that you are their Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. You know, at the request of our viewers, we've been asked, what are we going to do next? What's coming next? Well, we are very happy to announce the program Level Up. We've been mentioning it a couple times. Dr. Mark Finley and an expert medical physician will be joining us this coming week. It will be Dr. Steve Lee. So next Sunday, the 17th at 7 p.m., we will be having our very first Level Up, 7 p.m. Eastern, Level up, quarantine dilemma. We will be asking some very difficult questions. We'll start with Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee is an ear, nose and uh, throat specialist. He's also an oncologist and the vice chair of the ENT department of Loma Linda University. He'll be providing to us the scientific background for the quarantine situation. We'll be asking questions such as, when will the vaccine be available? How are we going to deal with this question of quarantine? But then Dr. Mark Finley will be taking us deeper, and we will be looking at the history of quarantine. Has it happened in the past for even thousands of years? Is there a biblical basis for it? Questions such as, Is it okay or wrong that we be asked to wear masks? Again, these are difficult questions, but they are questions that need to be addressed. So we hope that you'll be able to join us starting next week. We also want to invite you to tomorrow's program, This will be Medical Monday, Question and Answer Session Part 2. Many of you have sent your questions in tonight. We apologize we weren't able to get to those this evening, but you have another opportunity, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. We will have a question and answer session. So we hope that you'll be able to join us again at AWR for any more information you'd like, AWR.org forward slash health and be able to watch that program live as well. Finally, I want to ask you to pray for our programs. Pray that God will continue to bless as we each of us seek to have holistic health. One final question that has come in as far as the category one CME credits. For those of you who registered, Please, if you haven't done so already, make sure you complete your evaluation form by tomorrow because tomorrow is the deadline for your up to 12 hours of Category 1 CME credit. We will be having another CME symposium in the early fall. Please stay tuned. We will let you know. Again, God bless you, and I want to wish each and every one of us continued health, holistic health, physically mentally, and spiritually. Until next time, God's blessing and stay happy and healthy and whole.